I've had bosses who so trusted me when I do the schedule, they didn't even look at it before it was because they knew I had it under control. You, you want somebody who understands you know, the, the demands on your time and all the challenges, but that's hard. Hi, you've reached another uh, edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports, media, disruption, all different kinds of things. I'm Joe Favorito, flying solo this week towards the end of December 2022, as my uh, partner Tom Richardson is off doing holiday things. Uh, and we're going to talk today about the business of how the scheduling sausage is made with our guest. Tom O'Jackson's had a long-time career uh, at ESPN, the American Athletic, the Big East, so many other places. Tom, welcome to the Cusp Show. Thank you very much, Joe. It's a real pleasure for me to uh, to join you. I've uh, listened to many of your pods, and uh, I'm honored to be with you. Thank you. Well, the honor is ours, OJ. And um, so why don't you, in a couple of minutes, just kind of take us along the career journey that you had when you graduated Lafayette College to, to where you are now, kind of um, stepping away from the full-time role. Sure. Well, thank you. Um, I, I was a three-sport bench warmer at Lafayette, <laughs> third string safety in the freshman team. The quarterback was Joe Madden, the, uh, who went on to great things in Major League Baseball. And, I, and I'm reading his book right now, which is pretty yeah, I, uh, I'm getting that for Christmas. Really, yeah. <laughs> uh, he threw four touchdown passes against Lehigh in our last game, and then decided to give up football and concentrate on baseball. And I was a bench warmer in baseball too, and I even played uh, hockey. Uh, but I was a sports editor of the school paper. I was a sports director of the radio station, and then. Uh, after doing that a few years, I became a freelancer for the city paper, the Eastern Express and the city radio station, WST, and I really enjoyed that. But my big break was was right out of school, was getting an internship with the ECAC. And, uh, the ECAC at the time uh, was a totally different organization than it is now. It uh, ran the NIT. It ran the Ivy League office, uh, including with Army and Navy, what they call the Eastern League. It had uh, football independence. It had an NBC TV contract uh, that included um, Big East schools, all the Eastern schools. It had a hockey TV contract with a CBS affiliate in Boston. So that was a great start to my career. I was after the internship, I went to become the assistant SID at Princeton, uh, which was a wonderful experience and, and met so many fabulous people there. Many who have gone on to great careers in the sports uh, business and media as well. Um, uh, many people whom you know. And then I went back to the ECAC as assistant commissioner and really got a lot of experience working with NBC uh, on the game of the week, working with Marv Albert, which was a lifetime thrill. And then uh, ESPN offered me a job in communications um, a year after it started. I turned it down. I didn't think I was ready to leave yet. And then a year later, they offered me a different job in programming. And I accepted it. And uh, it was a tough decision because the same day I got offered the job at ESPN in the May of uh, 81, I got offered a job at the New Jersey Sports and Exposition Authority. Um, the arena was uh, uh, under construction um, and they had the racetrack and they had the, the uh, uh, giant stadium. I got interviewed at a Cosmos game, I remember. And, and uh, being a native of New Jersey, I really would have loved to have worked there too, and had a tough decision to make and decided to go with this uh, you know, young startup in Connecticut. And then um, I was hired uh, you know, to manage the 24 hour schedule. And so whatever was on uh, 24 hours a day, now back then we didn't have a lot of live events. So it was really scheduling tape delayed events and repeat events. And then I moved into acquisitions where I was negotiating more TV contracts and did them for all sports. Um, I remember doing the first NFL films deal and, and exercise deals and billiards, but certainly um, college sports was my favorite. And then I ended up uh, almost totally focusing on that. And I guess, uh, you know, it was a different time when being on television was a was very, very special. I, I often say that I think college basketball put ESPN on the map. And I was very proud of that because it was ESPN could not compete with the broadcast networks for games on the weekends. But the weekday Duke Carolina game, the weekday Georgetown Syracuse game, you know, those games were just as important 
as the games on a weekend and you weren't competing with the networks, you were competing with local syndicators and, and local TV, or sometimes these games weren't even televised. So you had high caliber games that you couldn't compete with. Um, ESPN actually had bowl games before they had regular season football. Hmm. I remember being at the fax machine when the Supreme Court case came over that said, you know, that the NCAA was not going to control regular season football anymore. And then ESPN, you know, got into the live college football. We used to do tape delayed games uh, before that. Um, but certainly the NCAA tournament and championship week, which I worked on, uh, two of the things I'm very most very proud of, as well as bowl week, uh, starting heading bowls, more and more bowl games. So it was a great experience. And um, I was getting older and, and, and uh, wanted a family and, and felt that it was a little too much travel. Um, so made the hard decision to leave ESPN and got married and uh, moved to the Big East Conference in uh, 95 um, and handled their scheduling and TV um, and policy, game ops, all those type of things um, and did that. And pretty much to the end of my career, though, obviously went through a lot of membership changes and the change of the conference itself, you know, in 2013, when the, the Catholic uh, schools left the Big East and bought the name and bought the garden contract. And we created a new conference called the American Athletic Conference. And uh, I had written this down close to my uh, retirement time that I've actually, as I told you, had worked for 37 different schools, which is amazing. There were the 10 original Big East schools when I started and, you know, the schools were coming and going as they are all across the country and with all the conferences. And every time the membership changed, you had to renegotiate your TV contracts, renegotiate your arena contracts, renegotiate your marketing contracts. And uh, you never really got into a rhythm because every year it seemed like you have a different set of schools practically. So and scheduling was different with with all those different schools and and um, and where they were located and where they were public, where they were private, where they were playing in professional arenas how the TV contract changed. Um, so the, the evolution of, of TV and scheduling, you know, is, is night and day from, from when I started. So um, I know it's a long answer, but uh, certainly the Big East was very unique playing in all the NBA and NHL buildings. And uh, that was quite, quite a mosaic. You know, it used to be that the conferences did their schedules before TV even looked at them and then TV would pick games and maybe if they're lucky, they could move them. And now we're pretty much of the era now where TV makes uh, suggestions to the conferences, just like they do to the NFL and says, can you put these games on these dates and then see if you can complete the rest of the schedule. But it is a Rubik's cube. It is a puzzle. And uh, some of it's much of it's computerized now where we used to do it all by hand, which was uh, pretty tedious, pretty tedious. So, so two pieces of trivia. One, I guess at the beginning, which I didn't know, that you were a college teammate of Joe Madden at some That's point. That's right. Uh-huh. And the second thing was, which you kind of buried the lead when you were talking about those schools, aren't there a certain number of schools that you actually worked with who never played in the Big East? That's true. So, I, I did mock that. I, that that would be uh, TCU, Boise State, and San Diego State, that they were announced as members. I did mock schedules. I did the contracts, uh, brokered, you know, the arrangements, and uh, they actually never played. But I still count them in the thirty-seven because I, I did work with them. I, you know, they were members, even though not on the fields yet. They were, <laughs> uh, and they were, and those schools obviously provided, you know, quite a bit of challenges. Quite a bit of challenges, you know. Unlike, unlike, let's say, Rutgers softball playing at USC this year and that we're in yeah. <laughs> the same type of challenges. So, yeah, um, yeah, that, that'll be something. Yeah. So matchmaking, um, yes. talk a little bit about what it was like in those times at ESPN. And by the way, you had some pretty high level bosses at that point, I would imagine George Bodenheimer and Steve Bornstein and um, oh, yeah. some of the legends of the industry. Like what was it like before the computer? Like, how did that come about? Like, is, are you sitting in a room saying, boy, we would really love to see, you know, um, North Carolina play, play um, the UCLA at some point in men's basketball? How, how did all that kind of come about? Walk us through the science of all that. Well, it was so different. Okay. First of all, people played less conference games. Mm-hmm. 
also the season started on a different date and um, you were trying trying to make a matchup for television when there was not as much television, um, had more of a cachet. Now, pretty much every game's on television. So while TV still, it doesn't create as many non-conference matchups, uh, nearly as many as they used to. Mm-hmm. All the networks would do that. Um, some of it was fulfilling contracts for so many non-conference games. The other thing that that has really changed over the years is in the early days of football, the home and away teams were paid. And in over-the-air basketball, the home and away teams were paid. Paid by paid by the broadcaster? Paid by the broadcaster, okay? But it then evolved to where only the home team or the home conference got paid. So the visiting team was not getting money for being on TV as wow. evolved, where in the early days they were. Now, in the early days also of ESPN, we, didn't, we weren't paying as much. Uh, didn't have as many homes, didn't have those kind of resources. So I was just trying to convince people to play based on uh, based on the exposure. Um, and the exposure was considered more unique back then uh, when it wasn't on. Um, you know, one of the games that that got a lot of attention, and you may remember this, was uh, uh, George Washington versus James Madison on President's Day. Yeah, I remember that. had a lot of fun with that. Now, you know, we... We had thought about that for a number of years, but we felt like both teams had to at least have been an NIT team the year before, before we could actually do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually have a shirt from that game. I didn't pull it out here for you for that. That was, that was fun. And, and everybody embraced that, but yes. Um, you know, I would go to, in some cases, I would talk directly to a coach. I talked to Mike Krzyzewski. In other cases, I would talk to the athletic director. In some cases, I would talk to the conference TV coordinator, whether it be the commissioner or associate commissioner. Uh, the cases you talk to a middleman like Raycom, which was a, a big power broker back in those days. So games came together all different ways. And you'd say, sometimes the schools would call me. I mean, here's one from Dale Brown. Dale Brown was the LSU coach when he had Shaquille O'Neal. So Dale calls me up and he says, um, hey, uh, I'm trying to get finished my schedule and I'm looking at a bye game against Chicago State. You know, is there any way you televise it? So maybe they'll come play me if you televise it. And I said, Dale, I said, they were one in 25 last year. How game against a team that was one in 25. He says, you don't think people will still tune in to see the big guy? I said, well, how long, how many minutes are you going to play Shaq if you're winning by 30? So we ended up not doing that game. Mm-hmm. Coaches that were very aggressive calling me saying, hey, I'd love to be on, and, you know, do you, does this opponent interest you? Or I'd say, would you consider playing this one and moving games around in dates? And then um, other times, you know, we would approach them. Um, so there was no one way it happened. Uh, you know, the other thing was some conference schedules were done years in advance, so it was hard to move some of those games, which that doesn't happen anymore. They're all done year to year. And, uh, you know, it, it really was an adjustment for a lot of schools to play on different days of the week. Um, you know, championship week, if you think about it, all conference championships were originally played on weekends. Everyone. Okay. Because TV wasn't really a factor. Okay. Well, when we started championship week. The first weeknight game that was a conference championship, you may remember this too. It's when the A-10 and the Metro Atlantic played a doubleheader at the Meadowlands Arena. I was there. You were there. There you go, right? Did West Virginia win that? I don't remember. I, I know Raftery I, I I I did the telecast. I would bet that Gail Catlin and West Virginia won that. Probably. I wouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, that then sort of broke the ice. And then we said, okay, well, who wants to play on Tuesday? And then who wants to play on Wednesday? And then suddenly, you know, you tried to fit them all in and, and get them all in. And, uh, you know, championship week was, was, you know, became a, just a terrific promotion for the NCAA tournament, of course. And it's like mm-hmm. be the first time a lot of people would actually see the teams um, is in championship week from the smaller conferences, which was great. You know, and then you'd get after the selection show, coaches would call me up and say, hey, can I get a tape of this game or um, of this opponent? And we felt, oh, boy, you know, that's that's a little difficult to uh, to make the uh, copies for everybody should we be really into that business and then so then i found out that villanova got a copy 
And I thought, like, how did they get that? They didn't call me. Well, they called the person who was head of the tape library, who was Italian, and Massimo <laughs> talked to him. And he was more than happy to make him a copy. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, million, million stories like that. Great, great. Before we leave basketball, talk about the NCAA tournament, because people may not know, especially yeah. the younger people who watch, that there was a time when not every game was on, when ESPN had the rights. That's right. And there were live cut-ins. How did that schedule work? Like, I mean, when you okay. looked at it, that's another big, you know, and that was- Oh, you're not kidding. How, well, how in the early years, you know, the, the broadcast network did the final four and maybe a regional final and maybe a couple of the games. So I remember my first year there, that's when, uh, you know, there were not, there wasn't 64 until 85. Okay, but you know, did the prelims and but basically ESPN almost did every game, you know, for the first, you know, the first three rounds. Now they were all produced by NCA Productions, our, our friend Jim Marcioni and, and others that. So ESPN didn't have much control over the start times uh, or anything else. But we think about the 80, the uh, 64 team bracket, which people are most familiar with. So there would be 16 games played on Thursday and Friday of the first round. CBS did one game at 11.30 at night. They weren't going to preempt primetime. They tried to get a game from the West Coast. Sometimes it wasn't even live. You remember when they were tape delaying NBA games, yep. <laughs> you know, back then too. So ESPN had 15 games of which they could choose. And we recorded them all, but which ones were we going to show live? Okay, 12, 2, 4, seven, nine, you try to get in five games if you could. Sometimes you're joining a game in progress. The other games you taped and aired overnight. But because there were all these games being seen in local markets, ESPN had no control over the tip times or the formats or anything. You know, we said, you know, that's where the live cut-ins came in. And because we did not have the uh, limitations of the local breaks, um, we had a little bit more freedom in that the local markets were always seeing the games, so you weren't taking people away. And we really, really embraced it, you know, and, and I think that set the standard for the live cut-ins. But the real decision was, okay, of these 15 games, which ones are you going to do live? And ESPN also did three of the four regional finals um, in, the, in the early years. And I guess the most important decision I ever made was putting the Princeton-Georgetown game on live in prime time. Wow. Because that was an argument with my boss who thought I was being biased towards Princeton because they were, Georgetown was the overwhelming favorite with Alonzo Mourning, you know, dominant number one seed. Princeton's a 16 seed. And I'm convinced that, and I convinced them finally that, listen, I don't expect Princeton necessarily to keep this close, but maybe they can, but it's the David and Goliath story. And if they do, we'll get a great rating. Whereas some other game, maybe between an eight, nine, um, you know, maybe it's a closer game, but, you know, I'm not sure you have a chance for as, as good a rating. And so we made that decision. I'm convinced that that game, uh, which is known as the billion dollar game, because that's the one that convinced CBS to buy the whole tournament, including right. the first round, if there could be first round games that, that were that uh, entertaining. Um, but if that game had not been live and was aired on tape delay at three o'clock in the morning, I don't think it has the same impact because what a lot of people forget is that East Tennessee State, I believe, had a one point loss to Oklahoma when they were a one sixteen that same year. Nobody remembers it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that's a special, you know, a special memory for me of that game. And then, uh, you know, Princeton became a Cinderella there. And then the next few years, we made sure to try to televise. But a lot of great games were not seen live other than their local local markets. You know, back then also, you know, the NC used to black out uh, markets unless the games were sold out. Wow. You know, I mean, yeah, just, I mean, going way back, I, when I speak to a lot of college classes, Joe, I tell them how the NFL used to black out home games. Yep. I um, I had this conversation literally yesterday or two days ago with someone telling them about the amount of hotel hotel rooms that were filled on the border of New Haven, Connecticut, because that's Oh, where absolutely. You get outside North the blackout radius. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How about this? You know, I'm a little older than you. I listened to the 1962 
Giants Packers NFL championship game at Yankee Stadium on the radio because it was blacked out in New York and I was growing up in Jersey. Can you imagine the NFL championship game being blacked out in New York? And, and it's funny for the people who don't even know the blackout rules, which just ended in the NFL four years ago, three, four years ago. Yeah. Really, if you were if you were not sold out, you cannot be shown. That was the late the last iteration was you couldn't be shown in your home yeah. market, which yeah. is why a lot of the one one o'clock, four o'clock games, especially in New York, were always varied because the, there was a time when the Jets weren't selling out, but the Giants have always sold out. And people people also won't remember, like in New York, when I was growing up, uh, there were no games live from Madison Square Garden. You could That's watch right. unless you had Madison Square Garden, MSG Network, which was not available in the city. So yeah. I never saw, I mean, I remember like in high school being the first time I actually ever saw the ice at Madison Square Garden live. Yeah. It was like a Monday night in, uh, in you know, whoever the broadcast was at that time was on Channel 9 in New York. They the NHL game of the week. But anyway, uh, in addition to the basketball scheduling, talk about the football scheduling because football, for some people, especially college football fans, look at it and they're like, why are college football games announced five years in advance? And how does that work? And then now, obviously, a lot of that will change. But what, talk about the marquee matchups when the Big East, which people may not remember, actually was a football conference. Yeah, we had three top or, 10 teams at one point. <laughs> or what ESPN was like on the scheduling side when you were doing those type of matchups. Yeah. Well, it's evolved so much again over the years. So once the NCAA case, you know, the NCAA lost the case, first you had what was called CFA, the College Football Association, which was every Division One school independence, conferences, whatever, um, that were not the Big Ten and the Pac-10. And the Pac-10 decided to sell their rights as a package, and then they divide up the money. And then the CFA, you got paid per appearance. Like I said, if East Carolina was playing at Michigan, both teams got the same amount of money in the game. And that amount depend on who the home team was. And there were the broadcast networks had what was called the 330 window. And then ESPN had the prime time uh, window for CFA games and trying to convince people to play at night was a big deal back then. Cause a lot of people didn't have lights other than the South. Uh, and then the noon game was called the open window. Also that back then, you know, people you know, were, were still playing 11 games before they went to 12. So conference schedules are now being made often on, on one year or, one-year basis as well, but the non-conference games are scheduled way out. What makes college football unique really in scheduling is the is the selection of the network and the start time on a 12-day or six-day basis. Everybody talks about NFL flex scheduling. I mean, college football has been flex scheduling for, for decades, you know, which is can be inconvenient for fans, certainly, but at least in college and They've done both, obviously, the time flex and some date flexes. You know, the NFL is going to next year, I guess, is going to maybe move a possibly a Sunday game to Monday, as I understand it, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're right now, they've been doing Sunday afternoon, maybe to Sunday night, and there's all kinds of guidelines on that. I know it frustrates a lot of people that, that the non-conference schedule are, are, are scheduled so far in advance. And I think it's more of a matter of people being afraid that there won't be anybody to play. So they just want to lock in somebody and lock in a, a, a dollar value and it just self-perpetuates itself. You know, basketball, you just don't see that. You know, maybe you do a two-year deal with somebody and, and that's about it. But football, yes, the non-conference schedule done way in advance. And you don't even know who your conference games are going to be <laughs> that far in advance. Again, that's all changed. I mean, the you know, conferences like the Big Ten or the Pac-10 or Pac-12, used to do their league schedules way in advance too, but they just can't afford to do that anymore because TV wants more control over where the league games are. You know, don't, and then don't forget, we, you know, when my early days in TV, we didn't have conference championship games. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why don't you talk about some of the matchups, the ones that, first of all, both, both football and basketball, we talked a little bit about the one basketball one, but yeah, dream matchups that you were able, you couldn't believe when they actually played, they actually happened. And even on the other side, what were some of the ones that you were never able to kind of put together in the day, basketball or football? Oh, basketball, the matchup that wanted to do for years and years and years was UConn versus Kentucky. And it wasn't that the two teams didn't want to play each other. You could never agree on who would be the home team the first year. That actually 
is the roadblock to a lot of games being made and that the teams are willing to play, but they both want to play at home. Right. So I said, having tried a number of years to try to get those two to play is all right. We keep running into the same roadblock every year. How about scheduling this three or four years out? So you have time to work the rest of your schedule around and adapt to whether you're home or away. And uh, just never got it done. So they finally mm-hmm. played at Madison Square Garden in the uh, Big East SEC Challenge um, when John Wall was on the UConn team, I mean, on the Kentucky team. And, and that was great, but it wasn't a home and home. You know, in, in, uh, in basketball, I mean, obviously going way back, you know, Louisville and Kentucky didn't play each other mm-hmm. until the NCAA tournament in a game that was on ESPN. Incredible rating. And then, of course, I think the state legislature said that they had to, had to play. You know, in some cases, like with Louisville, Kentucky, is every year it was a different date based on what TV and what the schools wanted. So even though you knew they were going to play, trying to find a date was very, very difficult. I don't know if you remember this one a number of years ago when John Cheney was at Temple. Temple and Villanova played a midnight game. No, not really. Not no. because of TV, but because what the contract said in terms about what the date was, and that was they could get it on that date. There's a million crazy scheduling stories. I think, you know, and often what you would do is you would offer a team, let's say Michigan was playing, you know, what a team on a certain date, but you wanted Michigan to play, you know, Kentucky that day. Okay. So you convince the team that's playing Michigan to move the game to another date and maybe you televise it as well in order to get them to agree to move the date so you could get mm-hmm. the early game you want on that date. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of that. And that happens in football. A lot. Uh, I don't know if you know Dave Brown from from Gridiron. Dave uh, was my assistant at ESPN, um, and he's developed this. He's a guru of football scheduling and mixing and matching, and, and has a software that everybody uses now because that's what he was doing when he worked at ESPN. Uh, and they do a lot of that. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's complicated, and. You know, sometimes it's, you know, the sports couldn't be any more different when it comes to scheduling. Mm-hmm. And then the, the other tricky thing about football scheduling is scheduling the weeknights. Mm-hmm. Because trying to schedule a game on a weeknight is just a totally different factor in terms of how you go about putting the matrix together. So the NFL, I think, has played one game in their history on a Wednesday night. Um, but yet you see college football now, especially playing on whatever nights there, you know, there are. You know, the yeah. American conferences plays in the middle of the week. Um, and when you were at the American, how was that? How Was it hard to convince especially football coaches to disrupt themselves just for the sake of playing on television? Well, you know, it goes back to the Big East days. I mean, you know, people like Louisville and Virginia Tech, they weren't getting exposure on the weekends and there were fewer games and fewer telecasts. So it was a chance for them to get on. And then, you know, ESPN made it financially worth their while. You tried to give teams a buy before. The short week is is really the difference. And some fan bases really embrace it. Now, also remember, it wasn't that many years ago where you were not allowed to play on Friday mm-hmm. and because of the high schools. And then, you know, that rule got changed. So a lot of the fan bases actually like the Fridays better um, because it's, you know, it's the start of the weekend and you don't have to, it, it's one less, one more day of practice for the coaches. Sometimes you do back-to-back Thursday games, so they would still have week off. Um, when I was scheduling Miami games, they would want to play a Thursday game the week of uh, the Jewish holiday sometime mm-hmm. and play on Saturday. So that was a perfect day to do a Thursday. I mean, the weeknight games a lot of times are the first ones that you schedule. Now, how the NFL – I mean, think about it, The NFL plays Sunday, Thursday. I mean, compared to the colleges playing Saturday, Thursday. That's really – Really tough. And I know the schedulers at the NFL and the NBA and the NHL and would trade stories with them about scheduling and work around their schedules. I mean, for example, the when you have a college team that plays in an NFL stadium, but the college schedule comes out first, you have to have a contingency plan if the NFL ends up using that stadium that day, whether it be South Florida or Temple or Pitt. Right. Um, things schools like that. Before we get to the technology side and how things have changed, talk a little bit about women's sports. You're obviously at the Big East and the American yeah. and even at ESPN. You were still on a pioneer, a bit of a pioneer with trying to make sure that women's games got attraction, whether it was, you know, yeah. 
sports outside of college basketball, but especially the growth of women in college basketball. How has that changed and how did that affect kind of all, all your duties to, to figure out how to get those things to, to well, work? Well, I think it's changed dramatically. You know, in the, in the early days, some of it was, you know, because of the NCAA contract. Um, and then as, as more and more uh, young women were participating in sports, they became viewers and mothers themselves. And the audience kept growing. And then you found some advertisers who really wanted to support it. That wasn't the case in the early days, um, particularly on, on ESPN, because the advertisers were looking for the young male demographic. As they said, there's a lot of other places on television you can reach to the female demographic. Well, that's changed. I mean, you've seen statistics about how what percentage of NFL viewers are, are, are women. And, you know, my wife is totally into her fantasy team. I don't even play fantasy football, but my wife mm-hmm. is addicted to it. Um, but that's different. That, that's women viewers versus women's sports. But, you know, women's basketball has certainly, you know, risen to absolute new heights, um, volleyball. But the sport that really has resonated, I think, in many ways is softball. Yeah. And I remember seeing that trend starting. And it's just incredible how solid the ratings are for softball. The speed of the game, it, it, you know, it fits in a two-hour window. It's action-packed. And, uh, you know, it's a lot faster pace than, than regular baseball. You know, another person I used to work with, Carol Stiff, has been a tremendous uh, advocate for women's sports on TV. But I really and she's also been advocating that, you know, trying to get the, the corporations to invest in it. And, I, and that really, I think, is the, is the yeah. key. And I see that this growing tremendously in the future. And, uh, you know, Women's Sports Network and things like that. And, and um it's only going to grow some more. It, it's it's got a huge upside, and you know sometimes it's a catch twenty two or a chicken and the egg. The, the sponsorships are going to lead to more telecasts, or the more telecasts going to lead to more sponsorships. Mm-hmm. Yep. Looking, I, I would imagine from the the data analytics and the scheduling standpoint, from a technology standpoint, at some point I would imagine probably even at the Big East, but definitely at ESPN, I'm sure there were these giant whiteboards with teams that you'd move around or you know sure. scheduling grids. How did that change over time, and how did, how did, how do analytics and, and the programs that are available now make it easier, more difficult, or a little bit of both for for schedulers who who actually have to put all these pieces together? Yeah, well, it's a good question. In, in the early days of ESPN, they didn't even have ratings. Wow. <laughs> okay, we didn't get ratings till November of '82, and the network was uh, years old. Um, and the initial ratings were based just on the people that subscribe to cable. You know, some years ago, it went to the total audience. So now whether if, if you've got a, you know, a one rating, you know, a lot of people get shares and ratings confused. A one rating means that 1% of the households are watching, okay? Regardless of, and then a share is the percentage of people who have their TV sets on. But that what's happened now is as Nielsen's got much more sophisticated in these other measurements is that they're doing viewers, not households. Right. Now, I am, I've always been surprised by the amount of viewers per household. So the average for college football is like about 1.4, which surprises me. You'd think there'd be more, more people. viewers yeah. in each household, though I do know the SEC is a little bit higher than the rest of college football. They watch more in groups. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't realize that many people would be watching by themselves. And of course, the other thing that has changed in measurement dramatically is, is digital viewership, which wasn't mm-hmm. measured before, and out of home, which people still don't believe is, is accurately measured, whether it be fraternities, clubs, bars. Now, you could also say, okay, there's all these people watching in a bar, but are they hearing the advertising? Because ultimately, is a factor of how does the advertiser feel about these yep. numbers? Yep. As you know, sports is holding up better than every other traditional television program in terms of having to watch live and not on demand. And we can talk forever about cord cutting and cord nevers and, and things like that as well. But certainly the rating, the ratings have always been a bigger play, though, for the guest networks, you know, particularly before they had retransmission, because they're they're basing most of the revenue on ad sales. We're the cable networks were depending on, on on subscriber fees. In the early days of ESPN, putting on a Boise State game against Idaho may not have got big ratings, but that was a big deal to the local cable companies in Idaho 
And mm. that meant more people signed up for ESPN, you know, the variety because of that. Well, that's another part of the country that you've got, you know, so I tried to do games from all 50 states. That was a strategy, um, you know, to make ESPN important in every locale where you, you know, so it, it was, you know, that was a difference too, but, you know, and demographics. And, and this is another thing. Everybody always talks about 18 to 49 or, you know, 25 to, to 49, whatever. You and I are way older than the, the demographic. And the perp, the reason they want the young demographic is they feel that they haven't locked into their preferences yet. At our age, you and I aren't changing our shaving cream, right? Whatever we buy, we buy, right? But if you're 23, like my son, you know, maybe you're sampling or you're beer sampling and you're saying this one, you know, hey, maybe I'll try this one. They feel they're not locked into their, their preferences. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, people our age, we have more disposable income. Yep. You know? So you think, why aren't they appealing to us? Because we have more money to spend than our kids. Um, but so much of this is demographic. And it really is the, the audience the overall rating is important, but it's the it's the demographic rating to the advertiser, which is really important. Um, and certainly affecting, but there's also contractual restrictions and, and things like, you know, well, why was this game on and not this game? Well, sometimes it's because the contract limited how many times this team could be on because they're protecting the a secondary contract or, you know, the, the net, you have to promise to get every team on. I mean, there's all these other clauses in these contracts that affect scheduling, or you can only do play this team in the afternoon so many times or this team at night so many times. And, you know, some of this is very specific in the contracts. Others is constant dialogue with the, with the partners. Um. Speaking of the, the constant dialogue, when you were at the American, streaming has now become oh. uber important, especially with the growth of ESPN Plus, right? Um, or some of the other streaming platforms. How has that helped the overall picture of a university, especially sports that may not have been available before, from yeah. from when you started out? And, and more importantly, where do you see it going? Yeah, well, I love ESPN Plus, and it was a big initiative for our conference, and. Interestingly enough, I mean, when we did this last major contract with ESPN, ESPN Plus was as, as important as any part of it. In fact, Burke Magnus, who signed the contract, who's their president of programming, he signed it twice, once on behalf of the Disney streaming and once on behalf of ESPN. It is critical because you have a, a, a thousand events that are on, over a thousand events are on. You know where to find them. You can get them on your mobile app. The production quality is getting better and better, whether it be the schools producing it or a production company or the conference producing it. And, you know, some of these were one camera streams before, maybe on a website. And if you were the visiting team, you'd have to pay for that one broadcast, you know, with the home team's uh, web web provider or something like this. It's it's incredible the volume that they do. It's a, it's a real great chance for not only these other sports to get exposure, um, but to brand the universities. Interesting again, as you know, that you know which companies have focused on streaming, whether it be Peacock or, or Paramount, but not Fox, at least not yet. You know, and but for Disney Plus and ESPN, it's it's such a priority, and every deal going forward will it'll be a bigger and bigger priority. But to coordinate all that, I, I basically served as executive producer of all these conference telecasts, whether it be the championships or the regular season events. And that was, it's a lot of work. And yet some schools have really embraced it, building beautiful control rooms. And it's, you know, whoever would believe you'd be watching games on your phone and it's right. clear. Now, we all know that latency, you know, is getting better and better. And that's a whole other topic with betting <laughs> and things like that, too. But to know that every game is going to be on and it's available on demand is, is, is just wonderful. And granted, these audiences aren't necessarily huge, but you put them all together and it's significant. And people are invested. The other thing I tell people is sometimes you have television on and it's like background noise, maybe with the game, right? You're watching a stream. Chances are you're really paying more attention and you're going to pay more attention to the advertisements as well. And you also don't have to worry about what time the game starts or ends because there's not, you know, it's, it's got its own own timeline. So, and you've got, and you've actually got games, you know, not conflicting games, but you can play games at reasonable times when people can go and find that's them. That's right. You can play whenever you want. 
Absolutely. True. That's a huge fit. I've had schools tell me sometimes I'd rather be on ESPN plus than, than ESPN two, because I want to play at this time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when you're watching on your phone, it doesn't look any different if it's nope. ESPN one or ESPN plus it's the same game, right? Uh, leadership. Um, you've worked for some um, charismatic and demanding leaders over the times, whether it was George Bodenheimer, Steve Bornstein, Mike yeah, Trangisi, yeah. Um, Dave Gavitt. You know, you go down the list, Val Ackerman you've worked with. What are some of the traits that you've seen from good leaders and, and who are they? What are the things you've learned from the people that you worked for? It's interesting because I we had the same discussion in Michael Diddleman's class uh, a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Well, I think great leader is one who gives you confidence and trusts you. Bob Kikowski, you may remember Bob's name yeah. too. Yep. You know, he was my boss for a while um, at ESPN. He had come from NBC and he said, I want you to be the leading authority, college sports and television, whatever games you think we should do. I mean, when, when somebody gives you that kind of confidence, it, it really makes it, you want to go through a wall for them, just like a coach. You want somebody who's paying attention. You know, you, you, you see leadership. Some people are, are applauded for being micromanaged. Other people are being applauded for hands off. There's no one way. And I think probably somewhere in the middle is, is the right answer. In that I've had bosses who so trusted me when I do the schedule, they didn't even look at it before it was because mm-hmm. they knew I had it under control. You, you want somebody who understands, you know, the demands on your time and all the challenges. But that's hard because a lot of, unless your boss has done the actual work you've done, sometimes it's very difficult because it's so complex to understand that all that goes into it. Mm-hmm. I'd say that, you know, somebody who, 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 who gives you like Steve Bornstein. He was a tough guy to work for. He was very demanding, but he was very smart. But he also, frankly, said, hey, go run with this. He let, same with George, was like that too. And, you know, that was really inspiring when somebody would say, I trust you, make your own decision on this. So I, I've always thought that that is, and, and somebody who, you know, also knows the younger people. In, in an office. A lot of times, you know, it's it's hard when you're the head of a big organization to have a relationship with some of the younger people, whether it be interns, but at least make some effort to, you know, get to know them a little bit. Um, and, uh, but I would say, you know, inspiring your staff and appreciating them is, is what always, that I've tried to do when I've been a boss and when people have, have been my supervisor. Cool. Um, what do you think? What's your opinion? Um, I think building consensus is really important. The people who can build consensus, really good good listeners are are really important. I I should Um, have said that. And curiosity too. I think curiosity is an important thing where people come in and say, what are you reading? What are you watching? Why are you doing that? I think that that's really important too. No, one thing I've always been big on staff meetings, actually. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't like them. They're bored. You know, they got other things they are working on. I think they're important. So everybody feels invested. I, one thing that bothers me sometimes is that people are getting so specialized. They're in their own silos. And I don't think they realize how hard somebody else is working in their in their department or their company and how maybe you should be able to share ideas and things like that, too. So I, I know everybody's all meeting doubt, whether in person or in Zoom, but I still think there's, you know, there's a certain value into people interacting with each other. So I think that's really important. Especially in sports, which is team-based for the most part too, having a right, team. That's right. So the, the last two questions we ask everybody are, and, and you kind of touched on this when we were actually on the field at Army-Navy about not being able to read enough, but how, how right. do you stay up to date, whether it's college, broadcast, consulting, with everything, where do you go for your information? And then the second thing you've touched on a little bit, but there are so many people out there now transitioning, looking for their second act or just starting out. What's yeah. the advice you give people? For sure. Um, in terms of staying up to speed and everything, it, it's overwhelming. Um, but I, I, as I may have said, I, I feel guilty if I don't read it all. And I feel guilty if I do read it all because I, I don't have the time. But yeah. certainly I tried to stay up on everything in college sports. You know, D1 ticker obviously was is, is mandatory. The industry sports business journal Sports Video Group, Front Office Sports, Media Post, Knight Commission, 
you know, all those type of things, obviously light shed, and there's so many streaming sources. And some of these are, are just like your own weekly newsletter. They're, they're daily newsletters with all these stories. And then I try to follow these people on Twitter too, and then find out where they've linked to stories that are interesting because the, the industry is changing so dramatically. You know, I probably subscribe probably to, gosh, it's got to be maybe 40 of these things. And I can't read them all, but right. I try to pick and choose. Same with podcasts. I love listening to podcasts. Yeah, There's so many great ones out there um, where, you, where you can learn things too. And it, it's, it's a real challenge. I, I wish I could do a better job of it. And that if I didn't read or listen, I figure, well, other people are reading this. I better read this. You know, certainly I guess sports business journals is the gold standard. Even though I work in college sports, I got to know what's going on in pro sports because there is a relationship there. You know, so you're reading that and other things like that. And, and just staying in touch with colleagues. I mean, there's the, you, you just internal emails. It, it's a lot to read, you know, NCA issues and stuff like that, too. So um, keeping track of everybody else's deals. I, I spent a lot of time keeping records of what every conference's contracts were, how they scheduled, what their money was, what the stipulations were. The career advice, I, I love mentoring young people. I think it's. I, I always tell people that there's a lot of people out there willing to help. They may not have a job for you, but they can give you some good guidance. You have to volunteer. You have to hustle. And every time you talk to somebody or meet somebody, make sure you get at least one other person to follow up with that they gave you a contact with. So, and I also tell people that, you know, you never know who can give you a lead. So if I can tell you a couple of quick stories here from, Sure. It's a, a college senior that are great. So um, it's my second semester senior year, right near graduation. I had an investments class. I was an economics major. And I asked the professor if I could have a, uh, an extra day extension on a paper. He said, sure. He lived near campus. He said, just, just walk it over to my house. Okay. So I walk over and he gives me a soda. We're just chit-chatting. And he said, well, what would you like to do? I said, well, I'm not really sure what I want to do. Law school, business school. Um, I said, but I'd really like to get into sports somehow. And he said, would you like to work for the Philadelphia Eagles? I said, I'm a Giants fan, but I said, but sure, I'd love to work for the Eagles. He said, my wife is related to the owner of the Eagles. Wow. Who knew? Wow. Right? So then he calls me up a couple of days later and says, listen, I couldn't get you a job at the Eagles, but I got you an audition for the sportscaster's job at the CBS affiliate in Binghamton, New York. Here, here's the phone number of the news director. Now, I had never been on camera in my life. I hadn't even been on a camcorder. I'd never been on film. I'd never, all I'd done was radio, right? So I drove to Binghamton, New York. They gave me the script from the night before a sportscast. I had five minutes to look at it. They put me in a studio with no teleprompter, and I nailed it. They had 60 candidates, and I was actually the runner-up. Wow. So then I ended up going, he said, and how about this then? A couple weeks later, I get a phone call from the CBS station in Altoona, Pennsylvania, <laughs> we're looking for a sportscaster and our sister station mailed us your you interested in coming out here and at that point i had made other plans but i, I was getting a reference i didn't even That's know funny. it okay yeah. you know greg burke right sure okay so greg burke is, is the sid holy cross i'm at espn and he says he had a he had just hired an assistant who the day before he's supposed to start says that he is he can't come. And Greg says, if I don't fill this position like in 24 hours, I'm going to lose it. Right. So he says, who do you got? So I pull out my manila folder of various resumes. Right. And start reading them to him. And he's, he, you know, he said, which ones were interesting. Then I, I faxed some to him. Do you remember Stu, um, Stu Mayer? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Stu was in Detroit. But he was at the garden. And Stu was working in Glens Falls, New York at the arena there. And he had a young person on the staff named Tim Connor. And mm -hmm. he sent me yeah. Tim Connor's resume. Later went, worked SID. Right. And that Notre Dame. Greg gets his resume, calls him up and said, I got your resume from Tom O'Jackson. He has no idea who I am. Right. He has no idea who I am. And he, and he gets hired. So because I kept that in the manila folder, and because I gave it to Greg, because his boss was nice enough to, to send it to me, never knowing if it would ever see the light of day, he mm -hmm. gets hired. And then another one I tell 
is because there's so many like this. My uncle was a cab driver in New Jersey. <laughs> and every day he would take this NBC executive to the train station in Summit, New Jersey. And he developed such a relationship that this he was this NBC like, vice president, was head of affiliate relations. He actually gave me a job interview at NBC because he liked my uncle, the cab driver. Wow. So I'm saying everybody you know knows somebody. It doesn't mean you're going to get hired, but you get a lead, you get a maybe you get a lunch and be prepared. I one time interviewed the niece of a good friend for a big internship. She didn't know who the schools were in the league. Yeah. Didn't know what the BCS was. Now, she had had internships with some minor league teams and did a great job. But it's one thing to maybe be doing game day ops. It's another thing when you're interviewing for like a programming or TV position, make sure you know who you're interviewing, what their background is and being able to discuss those things. So um, it's all to me, it's just, uh, it's more competitive than ever to get jobs, but there's also more jobs than ever and be a sponge, learn everything you can and learn how to write. Yep. Writing's <laughs> incredibly important in, in any form, whether it's texting or it doesn't matter. Just be clear, clear and concise in your in the words you put on, on whatever device it is that you're doing. Yeah. Um, last question, OJ, before we let you go is where can people find you? Where can they learn more about the stuff that you're doing these days? Uh, what are some <laughs> well, I'm not very active on the on, on, on social media uh, at TOJ. Actually, I, I read Twitter all the time, but I don't post mm-hmm. Same with Facebook, but I, I love LinkedIn. Yeah. I think LinkedIn is fabulous. So uh, I, I love to connect with people that way. So if you're interested in, uh, in connecting with me, uh, if you can spell my last name, uh, I'll be glad to link in with you. And, uh, you know, it's a, you know, it's the other thing that I've always told people, everybody I've tried to help with their careers, Joe, I said, it's their responsibility to help another person. Mm-hmm. I'll pass it forward. Cool. Great. Well, once again, uh, Tom O'Jackson, you've had an amazing career. We went everywhere from Joe Madden to your <laughs> uncle driver in Summit, New Jersey, which is really important. Uh, we want to really thank you for joining us on the Cusp Show and, and kind of passing on some of these pearls of historic wisdom, especially on the broadcast side. Uh, yeah. It's been great. Once again, uh, you've been listening to the Cusp Show with our guest Tom O'Jackson, just retired from the American Athletic Association. I'm Joe Favorito for my co-host Tom Richardson, and we will see you down the road.